You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. This is Energy Insiders and my name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK. How are you, David? I'm well, thanks, Giles. And I trust all our listeners are also uh, well and uh, I trust our special guest this morning is also well. Yes, look, our special guest today is Ian Learmont, the um, CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Ian, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Look, we've got a bunch of things, and look, you guys have actually just announced a new project down in South Australia, which I think is really exciting, and we'll get on to that really quickly, but um, I did want to touch on what I guess is the major issue in front of most people at the moment, and this is, you know, this um, this policy that we may yet get, but not really too sure about what to make of it, um, and that's the National Energy Guarantee. David, um, there was a 45-minute webinar from Kerry Shot on Friday. I guess it's one of those things which probably left as much questions unanswered as it actually answered. Um, from my perspective, I was just a bit worried that um, still using very old wind and solar prices, she acknowledged that the prices were coming down in a breathtaking fashion, but they still seem to be about a year or two out of date. Still seems to be this attitude of blaming renewable energy for problems on the grid. Um, and but did recognise that there were issues around emissions, um, the potential impact on competition and how the reliability thing might happen, but didn't seem to have many answers. And I guess that's because we just don't have much details and I'm not too sure whether they haven't thought of it or they haven't actually developed it. No, uh, Kerry presented well. Uh, she said there were 600 people on there and there was an unending stream of questions. Uh, but, but as you say, there's still very, very little information as to how the, particularly the reliability part of the guarantee will actually work. Uh, the more I look at it, the more questions I get to, it seems to be two parts of the reliability guarantee. Each retailer is going to have, a, to have a fast start and a slow start dispatchable generation. And it seems to me this is going to be quite prescriptive. It also has the look of being extremely bureaucratic with the AER, Uh, being the body that's going to opine on whether the recipe is successful. It's going to be measured relative to to forecast peak demand of each retailer. Well, you know, forecasts (laughs) have a way of not being always right, and generally many forecasts have agendas attached to them. And then the question is, what time period are we forecasting? And, and then there's a further set of questions about why Australia has to do it so differently. There are plenty of other jurisdictions around the world that have found far better ways of looking at capacity. Look, I could go on and on, Giles, but uh, listeners are going to get bored fairly quickly, and I'd like to hear what Ian's got to say about the CEFC. Absolutely. Look, um, I do recommend, though, to, um, to uh, listeners to read David's piece today. Um, it's quite detailed and it's a very good read, and I just think it's a fantastic um, highlight of some of the issues ahead of it. Um, Ian, just briefly before we get on to Lincoln's cap, um, Lincoln's gap, not Lincoln's cap, sorry, um, Lincoln's gap, um, what, what do you make of the, um, do you have any opinion on the, um, on the uh, National Energy Guarantee? I know your predecessor has been very critical. Um, you're probably not in a position to be so <laughs> well, straightforward. Yeah, look, look, thank you. It's for, for that. I've been, we, of course, we've been staying extremely close to the developments of the, the NEG, um, seems Canberra don't want to call it the neg, but it, it just uh, it, it begs to, 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 to describe it as such. Um, but look, in, in some of the, um, 
I guess some of the forums that have been convened with uh, industry participants and the experts, and you know, and Kerry's convened some of those, and as have AEMO. Um, I, I think you're right. I think it's I think it's a framework. I think it's a it's a mechanism and, a, and an approach. And all the um, you know all the the gaps and, and the details are yet to be determined. Um, the AMC are out um, seeking some some modelling, of course, as as we know from Frontier. So there's there's work being done there, and we're um, trying to <clears throat> assist and get involved where we can with. Uh, making sure that some of the assumptions around that modelling is going, going to be appropriate, and I notice you touch on power prices and that uh, you know the cost of energy for wind and solar absolutely essential that that they get that right. But look, so much is is to play out. You know what what the the, the definition of reliability um, is is still still unclear. Um, I think that they're they're working through what that's all about, um, and then of course the the emission. Uh, you know, reduction trajectory, which um, I, you know, the the Energy Security Board would say, well, that's that was a decision by Canberra. That's not our doing. That's that's a sort of a government imposition. The um, just let's just track Paris down to 2030, uh, rather than something more ambitious, which I know a lot of people, of course, including my former CEO, would uh, w- would love to see. Um, you know, they they're, they're I guess their position is their their hands are tied. So, so you look frustrating. And I, look, it will be the um, the Coag Energy Council on the twenty fourth of November will be a very interesting gathering. No question. Wouldn't it be nice to be a fly on the wall on that one? I think. Just on that Coag Energy Council, I mean, it's a real mishmash. It was never really intended, as far as I can see, as an absolute decision making body, more of as a consultation forum. I mean, if you look at it, you've got New Zealand representative on there. You've got two federal government representatives on there. You've got two people from the Northern Territory on there, but only, I think, one from New South Wales. And uh, I guess as far as implementing the uh, NEG, uh, it really only needs uh, anyone can... You, you Giles, could ask uh, the AMC for a rule change uh, to implement the NEG. Uh, it certainly doesn't need oh, necessarily COAG approval. <laughs> well, it's interesting, David, isn't it? Because you've also... Um, you know, Queensland are, of course, in election mode, so um, they're in caretaker. Uh, so they're not <clears throat> going to be, a, uh, you know, I can't imagine that their contribution will, will be he- heavily qualified. South Australia goes to the polls early next year. In and March, Tom, yes. Yeah, Tom Coots-Antonis has been very vocal about mm. the NEG. Um, and uh, are you, so who knows? Are you in favour of it actually going forward then? Because I think what the, the COAG is going to say is that do we agree to pursue this further and to commission more modelling and to find out more answers? Well, Giles, my position is um, if we can agree a framework um, across the, uh, you know, across the, um, the name that, that uh, has, you know, that we can have some consensus on that, that gives us some investment certainty for the, for the next 10 or 15 years, um, that would be a great outcome, of course. Um, if it if it also allows some flexibility of states that have different aspirations about around emissions reductions to to up the ante, 
in terms of the you know the percentage of renewables and the and, and the sort of the composition or, or emissions profile of their, of their power, then that also would be helpful. Mm. So look, I, I'm an optimist from way back, and I would I would uh, love us to be able to land something. Uh, the worst thing would what I guess would be you know it, it gets scrapped and we're all back to the drawing board. I'm not sure that would be the worst thing, Ian. And I, I think myself, I've always thought that, in fact, the CEFC, and I don't expect uh, uh, too many people to agree with this straight away, is actually a fantastic organisation. If I look at it, the most successful way of going about things, I, I think, is the reverse auction programs by the states. These provide the long-term certainty and the low cost of capital, and they allow for a very efficient planning horizon where you could have three and five year uh, targets for various classes of renewables, including dispatchable renewables or other dispatchable generation for that moment, that matter, that would that would provide the and I think, you know, from a federal perspective, <laughs> I've always thought seen the CEFC uh, as a body that could play a really central role in that, but 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 uh, and I um, so I, I'm not, I just don't understand why we have to go with this retailer-focused approach when no other jurisdictions around the world's doing it. But look, we'll still be talking about this for months and there's so much more to talk about with the CEFC, Ian. Certainly. I mean, let's, let's, let's get on to Lincoln's Gap, um, David. Um, I'll just explain to, to um, listeners this morning, um, on Monday morning, um, the CEC announced um, they're putting in $150 million into the Lincoln Gap Wind Farm, which is a 212 megawatts eventually um, project. I think the first stage is going to be 126 megawatts. The thing that's really interesting th about this is the fact that they're adding 10 megawatt, 10 megawatt, 10 megawatt hours of battery storage onto the wind farm to use as both time shifting and in the FCAS, the sort of the frequency and stability services market. Um, pretty interesting project, um, Ian. Look, we're really, really excited <clears throat> about the, the uh, announcement of the, the Lincoln Gap project. It's our first wind farm in South Australia, which um, might come as a surprise to, to listeners, given uh, you know the, the high degree of penetration in that state and how many wind farms we've been financing. So, uh, very pleased to to be to be part of the project. It's as you say, very interesting. Ten megawatts of battery energy energy storage that can produce up to ten megawatt hours of fast frequency response is, you know, I think is. I mean, it's not it's not the first, but it in in the sense that. Um, it wasn't imposed by the regulator or, or the off-takers. It, it was a decision uh, that came about in, in consultation with the, um, the project proponents. Um, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> I think it's, it's one that, that is really at the forefront of, of this you know, new wave of project. And remembering also that it's the Senvian turbines are, are, are you know, the first of these 3.6 megawatt turbines are the first that have uh, been installed in the country, uh, it's got what's some. The, what's the significance of those Senvian turbines? Uh, um, well, I think I think it's just the scale of them and and the uh, and, all, and all the new projects are moving to the um, over three megawatts class. Uh, Goldwind uh, down in uh, Victoria, uh, and also the uh, Cooper's Gap. They're all the, it's the new class of turbines. It's three and a half megawatts, more or less, three point two to three point six, and. You know, this is just going to increase the efficiency of, of wind farm and reduce the cost and, and reduce the price. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that <clears throat> that's exciting. Well, you know, they've got a couple of um, there's some contracting uh, with the the project with the ERM and, and Snowy, uh, but but a significant amount of it is still is still merchant exposure, and and that's where we you know we feel. Uh, it's important for us to play a role in these these financings, where um, you know there is some merchant exposure, and the, and the mainstream banks don't necessarily want to play. 
So they're still sort of balking at that, aren't they? And that, that, that's, that's the role that you've still got to play because you've also sort of financed another merchant project. I think I can't quite remember which one it is now, but um, somewhere else. And um, but but the the main banks just but just not coming into that yet. That that's right. I mean, you might be referring to the one up here, Kennedy in Queensland with mm-hmm. the with WinLab. Um, so that was uh, announced a couple of weeks ago, and that and that was interesting because it was a combination of solar, wind, and some storage. Uh, so uh, you know, it's it's increasingly becoming a, a theme to, to new projects. It is, Ian, and, and you know, and Giles wrote a story about DP Energy, which is another one in South Australia that's going to combine wind and solar uh, with this aim of both uh, boosting the um, uh, overall dispatchability of the intermittent resource or the predictability. I think would be a better word. Uh, but also, I suppose, the special feature of the DP one is that they're aiming to have uh, good generation at the time of peak demand in South Australia. More generally, Ian, I mean, since you've become CEO, and I see that the uh, CEFC has also got a new chairman. I was reading one of his speeches this morning, Steve Scala. It must be, yes. must be great to work with such a... Uh, you know, uh, uh, a knowledgeable chairman, can I put it that way? It, it, look, indeed. So it's, for me, it's six months in the... Um in the seat as the CEO, so uh, that's been it's been terrific to get my feet under the desk um, over the you know over the last period of time, and uh, we've done you know we're still continuing to do a lot of transactions, um, and you know feel like there's still a very significant uh, role for us to play, big gaps in the market that we're filling, and at the same time, of course, of my arrival <clears throat> shortly thereafter, uh, we you know we had a a bit of a transition with our board because the board were appointed as the inaugural board. Uh, four of the directors, including our esteemed former chair, Gillian Broadbent, came up to their five-year term. So, yes, Stephen Scala joined us uh, a couple of months ago now. Um, he is um, a, uh, you know, a very experienced and, and, and seasoned uh, bus- businessman. He's, he's the vice chair of Deutsche Bank, so he sees a lot of... A lot of deals, commercial activity through that role. A long-standing or former uh, partner at Arnold Block Liebler, so uh, you know, very, very uh, experienced and, and sort of um, uh, esteemed lawyer from Melbourne. So it, look, there's a, there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of skill and and suitable experience on our on the new board, and we've still got a couple of new directors that will be announced over the coming months because. Um, that you know the last of the first wave of directors will scroll off in February next year. I, I was reading one of Steve's speeches he made at the ABC where he was talking about the power of silence and what's not said, and uh, you know referring to talking about General Monash. But anyway, and 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 uh, also the Holocaust. It's a very interesting and, gr- and excellent speech. But look, coming back to the CEFC, uh, I guess uh, since you've been CEO, Ian. Um, the number of projects uh, has really accelerated and I've been a little bit critical at the past about how slow the CEFC has been to get a, to actually do any investment, uh, but it seems to me you've, you've really been getting on with it in the 12 months and, and even since the 30th of June. Well, that, look, that's true, David. Um, I, <clears throat> I wish I could uh, lay claim to, to some of that success. In some ways, the momentum that was, that was built up under Oliver's stewardship and the way that the RET, the you know the projects relating to the build out of the RET have really um, hit home over the last 
18 months, if you like. So um, for the year end of 30 June uh, 2017, we, we committed some $2.1 billion of capital, did 35 deals, <clears throat> which is an enormous amount um, compared to the, you know, twice the year before and you know, four times the year before that. So it's been exponential in its, in its growth. There were 10 solar uh, utility scale solar projects, so plenty of uh, renewable activity. And then in the in the um, four or five months of this year, the current year, it looks like we may well repeat that sort of degree of um, of commitment. And it's not just in uh, the generation sector; it's not just the, the, the renewable energy assets. We're putting uh, capital to work in infrastructure and the built environment, real estate projects where we're trying to drive energy efficiency uh, with with um, you know right right across various sectors: commercial, property, retail, uh, agriculture, and so on. So it's um, yeah, it's a bit. It's been a busy time. That's right. And of course, uh, most of our listeners will be well aware that electricity only accounts for about 37% of Australia's carbon emissions. And uh, we get this fantastic debate in that sector. And yet the other 70% or 63% gets completely ignored in, in the argument. So it is good to see the CEFC operating in that area. And you mentioned buildings. I mean, it seems to me that a fantastic opportunity has been missed in the building construction industry. We've had all these residential apartments and even office towers being built, but the energy efficiency of those seems hardly to have improved. You don't get, seem to get, they seem to have been built to the lowest cost, lowest price, uh, lowest energy efficiency standard you can get away with. Uh, in general, do you think the CEFC can change that much, Ian? Well, we, look, we're, we're trying, um, <clears throat> and I think we are having some success. You know, we're... Um, we, we, you know, we're focused on working with players like AMP and Investor and um, and, and other leading, uh, you know, lead, leading proper property participants. Where we, you know, we're trying to uh, drive the increase in, in, for example, the way that buildings are designed to a higher green star rating or how they're operated in terms of their neighbours' ratings. And you know, it's important for us to to make sure that the capital that we're deploying there is is a catalyst, is driving that sort of behaviour and, and they weren't just doing it anyway um, so that the taxpayers are really getting a bit of bang for their buck. And some some sectors um, <clears throat> are, are quite... Uh, developed and maturing in a way. For example, the you know the commercial property sector with uh, with you know the, the Green Building Council and its rating systems. I mean, everyone's very familiar with it. And some people, particularly government tenants, won't won't lease properties unless they're of a particular standard. But other sectors like infrastructure, hotels, um, that the health sector, still a long way to go. Haven't really focused on uh, energy efficiency. So still a lot of work to be done. And Ian, you've mentioned. Sorry, sorry Charles. I'm just, <laughs> no, that's okay. No, no worries. Yeah, uh, you've mentioned that. Uh, well, I read in the CEFC that I think it is one dollar of CEFC investment is associated with I think two dollars of private sector investment. Do you have any explicit goals in that regard? And uh, I also noticed that the return is a little bit below the unrealistic uh, government required return. Um, I, I'm just wondering how you think about those two goals and, and also the third part of this is that the actual CFC balance sheet I think is still only showing a couple of bit, little over $2 billion of total assets which is a long way short still of what, what it potentially could be under the overall mandate. Yeah, look, a few, a few points in there. I mean, in terms of <clears throat> the the return on the portfolio and for, for listeners, the, um, the, 
the government from time to time issue uh, a directive as to uh, what the sort of uh, portfolio return that they would like, um, the benchmark return. The current one is the five-year government bond rate plus three to 4%. Now, uh, that would translate uh, to about you know, five, between 57 and 6.7%, so quite high. If you look at our portfolio, which is in terms of deployed capital, you know, some, you know, over $2 billion of money out the door, 90% of it today is debt, senior, senior debt, in many cases secured over renewables projects or real estate projects. So you're not going to get those sorts of margins. You're not going to get 3 to 4% over a base rate. Um, and so we would say, look, yes, that's an aspirational target, and the government have given us that direction. However, <clears throat> um, our portfolio is tracking at about four point five, about four and a half percent today. So we're, you know, we're sort of a percent and a half below where, um, <clears throat> you know, where the government might like us to be. But I think um, it's our return is a fair reflection of the risks that we're taking, and I and I think the government uh, to that end are happy with it. Are they reflecting on is it is it an appropriate return uh, target for us to meet? Should they should they bring it down based on the sort of things that we're doing? We will probably seek out a greater um, a proportion of equity investments over the coming I think over the coming years as as the you know the, the, the mainstream the big four banks and the other mainstream lenders increasingly come into the space they get more comfortable we may have to help projects get up through equity or mezzanine or uh, some other um, slice of the capital structure so we, you may see that and we would like to see the portfolio return come up a little bit but at the moment yes look it's a long way off in terms of leverage look we're, we're very happy with the the, sort of the two dollars or just over two dollars of private sector for every dollar that we put out. We see that as as an important important um, benchmark for us. We're always about crowding in capital, and um, you know we don't want to displace banks, and 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 so so that that sort of degree of of leverage I think is good. You will see in terms of. You know, if you if you look at it and say, well, you guys have been around five years, and and that two billion a year that, that the government allocated to you is now all, uh, you know, it's all, all, all sort of qualified, and you've got your ten billion, and but you've only got two billion out or plus out the door. Well, I think in in another eighteen months that that may will be significantly greater because a lot of the commitments we've made over the last eighteen months, those projects are being built out, those buildings are being built, those. You know, acquisitions and, and, and enhancements uh, are all being made. So we're definitely seeing a very significant uptick in, in, in money out the door. Can I just ask a question about um, electric vehicles? I think you did a, um, a deal um, with Macquarie Group um, providing finance for um, leasing, um, um, sort of um, targeting the electric vehicle market. Um, what's your sort of prognosis in that? And I guess I've got another question is, why does actually a big bank like Macquarie need any more money? <laughs> Uh, and, and, and look, and then a fair question, and the media, of course, asks the same question because uh, any taxpayer financing to uh, to Macquarie will raise a few eyebrows. Um, but uh, we provide many of the, the banks and the, 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 uh, most of the big four and Macquarie and some of the other players a wholesale facility, so a slightly concessional wholesale debt facility. Um, to allow them to on-lend, passing on that concession to end users. So they might be SMEs or consumers where the, the end borrower is acquiring assets such as 
you know, solar panels, inverters, electric vehicles, other forms of plug-in hybrids and so on, so that we can reach uh, much smaller uh, scale transactions right around the country, which we, of course, as a 90-person organisation... So you're using them as like a wholesaler or distributor of that e finance type exactly, of thing. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And, 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 and so the Macquarie deal... Um, you know, we've got the 100 million wholesale facility. It covers a vast range of different things, energy efficient, agricultural, you know, equipment, appliances and solar panels and so on. It, I think people sort of jumped on the fact that, you know, you know Macquarie is financing people with Teslas using the CFC's money. Um, it, it, what's the story there? But it's a much bigger and yes, broader I, I, story. Yeah, I think a few people actually divided the amount that you were giving them with um, how many Teslas you could buy for that amount and came up with a shocking number. But um, <laughs> but anyway, um, just getting back to Lincoln Gap, it does interest me that you're in there, um, particularly with the merchant market and particularly with the battery storage, um, the fact that it wasn't actually done with any grant funding. But one of the attractions seems to be then that this project was not locked into this whole sort of retail market. And I actually talked to the guys from Lincoln, um, from Nexif um, Energy, the developers, and and they weren't happy with um, the bundled options that um, most of the developers have to fall into with retailers, and they're very, they're very keen to strike out from that and sort of you know be independent, play the merchant market, and provide a bit more competition to the market. Was that important for you guys? Don't they have an ERM contract, Giles? They've no, got they do, but it's only, it's only partial. It's, it's partial, and there's a very and there's a partial snowy um, contract. Um, <clears throat> look, I think with the right equity. Um, proponents um, and people with with you know, substantial players like the Nexif Energy team, um, you know, we, 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 you know, we're happy to support those sort of people and, and, and for those uh, players that, you know, that they themselves have a particular strategy that in, in the current market with, with, obviously, with very, high, you know, with high wholesale prices and good LGC uh, revenues, they're, they're in a position where they, they can take a bit of a view today on that. Um, We'll see how they go in the market uh, finding contracting. Um, but I think, you know, there are some players that don't have that luxury, if you can, I guess you could suggest, um, where they need to have everything locked down and, and complete contracting. Um, but, but here, look, I think it's, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see who, who comes forward. Um, you know, the RET is being built at a rapid clip. As we it's all know. Just, it's just extraordinary what's happening in the north of the Spencer Gulf there. You've got Port Augusta where you've got this, this project, the Bungala Solar Project being built, which is 220 megawatts. You've got the solar tower being built um, or about to be built. You've got the DP Energy proposal. And then just a bit further south, you've got the Wyala Steelworks, um, one gigawatt of capacity. It's just it's extraordinary. Isn't yes. It? Giles, this brings me to a couple of my other rant points this morning. One is the uh, transmission planning. South Australia has still got enormous renewable potential, but it doesn't have the transmission links to get the uh, energy out of, out of South Australia. And I'm very critical of AEMO and how slow they are in developing the transmission strategy, but particularly as it's so important to the renewables and so important to Tasmania. And so that would be complaint number one. Where is I'm, the... I'm, going to, I'm going to interrupt there. And just uh, It was just really interesting. I actually haven't written a story on it yet, but I did listen to the rest of a Kutzentonis speech. And he was actually saying he wasn't in any great big hurry to have a transmission line because he basically wants to flood the market locally with renewables, bring the prices down. And then when they've got their, what he said, get their act together, then he wants to export them. But um, that's Yeah, but he's not developing a project. <laughs> 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 low, price, low prices don't go so well with project finances. I'll just give you a clue. 
But uh, the, the second uh, piece of the rant I wanted to just quickly finish on is uh, BHP this morning calling for more international carbon credits to be allowed in the Australian with the NEG. I mean, in, in, frankly, an international carbon credits are a source of fraud. I, I can't put it any more bluntly than that. Europe wasted billions and bi tens of billions of uh, euros on, on these fictitious schemes. And I, I kind of think it, uh, it's Australia's contribution that we're making, not the world's contribution. Not a, every other country has to do their bit. It's interesting, David, <clears throat> you say that in some, you know, in various forums, uh, you know, people are raising raising that question, of course, um, about should we, uh, what you know, what portion of of um, you know the, this this the emissions reduction could could we allow under the neg to to use international credits and I, I think there is definitely some head scratching being done around that and and as you say the language is is could be used so w will we see it in the final wash up I uh, you know we may not I don't know really interesting really interesting um and it's interesting with the neg about how much of the stuff that is being said is actually sort of pitched for political purposes rather than actual policy processes and i guess that'll emerge over the next little bit i guess one concern in is that with all this whole process and how long this is actually going to take to resolve do you share some people's fears that this actually might put a little bit of a halt on investment over the next 18 months well look i think think back to david's point uh, that I, if if this does drag out and there's a there for various uh, reasons there's political uncertainty in Canberra and there's political changes um, or that the neg neg grinds uh, down to uh, uh, you know to a sort of a very slow or even halt potentially with state government changes investment is likely to be keyed off some of the initiatives at the state level um, and that's where we, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, we are seeing these initiatives in Queensland and the VRET. Um, uh, so we all subject to elections, know, though. In, in, subject in to elections. Yeah. yeah if if yeah. things, the well, political colours change in Queensland, it'll be a very different game up there. But of course, the Queenslanders could win, as Giles mentioned. Uh, they seem to have a bet each way. If the Liberals get in, they might get a write-off of their of their asset basis in, in in the network companies. But look, we're we're coming up to half an hour of fantastically interesting discussion this morning. But as I could go on for another hour and a half, but I guess listeners probably think a half an hour of electricity a week is is, is pretty good going. <laughs> <laughs> look, it has been great. Um, hey, before we say goodbye, um, is there anything coming up in the next week, David? Our normal throw forward. Um, um, I'm, I can't actually think of anything, quite frankly. Um, COP23 outcomes, I guess, is what we'll be keeping an eye on. I mean, it's oh, hard. Oh, Frydenberg's over there at the moment. That's true. So it's hard work getting these things done. It requires a huge amount of effort and ongoing decades worth of work uh, that, you know, where you, uh, a bit like Bourbon, you can never, just never give up. I've been to I've been to seven of those cops and I vowed never to go, and go to another one. Um, I do note that... Um, that Australia has got its second fossil fuel of the uh, fossil fossil fuel of the day of, of, of the war, but it's interesting that you get that BHP stuff coming out of COP at the same time. You do get interesting pushes like the uh, Californian governor Michael Bloomberg um, asking for separate status to be able to be participating in the talks because they're saying that um, the American government's not representative of what's actually happening in the country at the moment. So that's pretty interesting. I guess that's a bit similar to what's happening in Australia with the states and the federal um, dichotomy on their policies. Yeah, I think, I think you know, COAG on uh, the 24th of November will be, uh, the, you know, that'll, that'll be the next interesting 
uh, date in the diary, I suspect, for some of this, um, for some of these it developments. Will be. It will be. And how that voting comes up, and I still haven't quite worked out what that voting is. And someone actually told me the other day it's by consensus, which means that you could actually get people disagreeing, but they all look like they do agree, and um, and they go forward with that. But it's going to be fascinating. Ian, it's been a great chat, as David says. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, nice to be on the uh, on the podcast. And thank you, David. Thanks, uh, Giles, and thanks for having me as, as, as ever. And uh, I hope the, all our listeners have a great week. Absolutely, and and, um, and I hope our sponsors have a great week too. That's Solaray Energy and What Watches, and I should have mentioned them earlier on, but we do thank them. Um, and we do thank your listeners. If you do have a comment, we'd love your feedback. If you leave a, um, a review on iTunes or whatever, that helps in our distribution. Um, our numbers are growing, and we're very thankful for it. So goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.